Let me invite you to take your Bibles in hand and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. You'll find that listed for you in the bulletin, the page number. 2 Kings chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. We are now at the final message in our series on the life of Elijah. We bring this to a close this morning. Let's give our attention to God's word and to this beautiful section where we see in remarkable fashion the ascension of Elijah to heaven. 2 Kings 2 and verse 1. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. And Elisha, Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And then he took hold of his clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. This is the unerring word of God. Will you pray with me, please? 
Father, thank you for the privilege of reading and opening your word. The privilege of your spirit being our teacher. The privilege of knowing that you have proclaimed to us that you will not send forth your word and have it come back to you void. You know what you intend to do, and we pray, Lord, that you'll do far more abundantly than we have yet asked or imagined both for ourselves and for your people. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to think with me in your imagination about the baton pass in a relay race with four superb athletes. Done well, it is an extraordinary thing of beauty. Done poorly, it looks like a mess, and we in the United States have had a few of those races before. Four teammates, sprinters all, practicing their, their handoffs of the batons over and over and over again because no matter how fast these racers are, if the baton passes are done poorly, the race is inevitably lost. So much is lodged in the success of those three successive baton passes between four racers. And it is, in a very real sense, the same in successive generations of the leadership of the kingdom of God. As the kingdom of God advances, as the progress of the kingdom of God goes forward, the advance takes place generation after generation, and there are repeated baton passes of leadership throughout the ages. Our passage sets before us just one beautiful example of the baton pass of the leadership of the kingdom of God. Well, let's remember where we are in the life of Elijah as Elijah begins to disappear now from the scene. We've seen in our prior passages that Elijah was used of God to challenge the the God of the Canaanites, Baal. He was, as one scholar puts it, a warlike weather deity. In other words, he rode the storm clouds, or so it seemed, and on his chariot he came to deliver rain and fertility and storm and fire to his people. But as we saw back in 1 Kings 18, in a remarkable scene, Elijah leads a defeat and a mockery of the gods of the people of the Canaanites. And there is but one true God who reigns over not only Israel, but all the nations of the earth. The Old Testament scriptures show us again and again that the God of Israel was indeed the true king, the creator Lord, whose chariot is the whirlwind, and who leads his heavenly hosts in conquering his enemies and ours as well. A dear brother in the Lord who is now with Christ, Old Testament scholar Ray Dillard, whom I had the privilege of studying under, writes the following, when Elisha saw the whirlwind, the fire and the horses, the symbolism was unmistakable. The warrior God, the captain of the armies of heaven, had come to retrieve his servant. And Elijah had fought the good fight, and now his commander would take him out of the fray and into his heavenly reward. Well, Baal is defeated. His prophets are 
shown to be a fraud and they are destroyed. And the living God of, of might and of covenant faithfulness comes riding on the whirlwind to take away his servant Elijah. But put yourself in the shoes of the average Israelite and of Elisha. With Elijah's departure, would there be a leadership vacuum? Upon whose shoulders would the mantle of Elijah fall? Who would take up the baton and run the race as God had intended? On whose shoulders would that leadership fall? Well, what I want you to see this morning overall is that God is in charge of the baton pass. And God will always have his faithful leaders for his church, no matter what the generation may be. There's much for us to learn and embrace here this morning. There are three things that I want us to see. Here's the first theme for us to embrace, that the Lord is in fact in charge of the changes in his kingdom the leadership changes, and that we should expect those changes and receive them with a discerning faith. God's in charge of the leadership changes. We should expect leadership changes, and we must discern them by an earnest faith. Well, there are seasons in our churches and in the kingdom of God when, more broadly, God has determined a leadership change. And the Lord will not leave his people without faithful folks to follow. Now, Elijah has been so vital for so long amidst the people of God, so strong, so famous, there is nevertheless going to be a season when God is going to remove Elijah, and we get to witness it here in our passage. And as believers, we've got to be awake to the leadership changes that God intends in our ministries and in our lives and in our season, whether they're planned or unplanned. Now listen to this important truth. There are no indispensable leaders in the kingdom of God, period. Why? Because there is always one indispensable leader who is in charge, King Jesus. He is always present, always leading, always in charge, and always working out the beauty of his own plan in the midst of the leadership changes of the kingdom of God. Now look with me in verses 2 through 7 at this very interesting scenario between Elisha and Elijah and the going down to the three different locations. It seems very strange to our modern ears. Elijah is sent by the Lord to Bethel. He's sent to Jericho and to the Jordan River. Elisha refuses, steadfastly refuses to let Elijah out of his sight. It seems that Elijah and Elisha and all of the sons of the prophet know that Elijah is on his way out, and yet nobody will speak of it openly. It's a very strange uh, pathos in the passage. There is a palpable tension in this story. But Elisha will not let go. The separation is hard. And yet there is more than an emotional attachment here between these two men. And of course, that certainly was the case, an emotional attachment. 
But there is here a God-fashioned leadership change that must happen, and it must happen well. Elisha will not let go until he has the assurance that he has been called by God and equipped by God and that God has laid upon him the ability to take forward the mission of the kingdom of God. There's a profoundly important biblical general pattern here for us. We need to learn that next generation leaders in the kingdom of God and in the church must be those truly called of God, truly equipped of God, truly affirmed of God, and truly welcomed by the people of God. It's a general pattern we find throughout the scriptures. Now look with me at verse 9. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha asks for a double portion of the spirit that had fallen upon Elijah. It's an extremely bold prayer and one that only God himself could answer. And it's granted by the Lord. In verses 13 and 14, he repeats, that is, Elisha repeats Elijah's actions with the cloak and the Jordan River when he's passing back over. And he's assured and comforted by this miraculous work that God is with him and has called him and equipped him. You notice in the 14th verse this bold phrase, Elisha cries out as he strikes the river with Elijah's cloak, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And it is affirmed that the God of Elijah is now with Elisha in the miraculous separation of the waters. In verse 15, the company of the prophets come out from Jericho and they acknowledge themselves that Elisha is now the lead prophet in the land of Israel. They themselves affirm that God has called and equipped this man. So Elisha is wrapped with Elijah's mantle. He is wrapped with a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And it is clear that the Lord has called him and has equipped him now now remember what the double portion meant in the Old Testament. You remember that the double portion was reserved by the father to give to the eldest son. What God is doing here, both in the request of Elisha and in the actual answer to that request, is God is saying that I have indeed called this one. He is, as it were, the firstborn son of Elijah, on whom is my double blessing, the inheritance of the leadership of the ongoing kingdom of God. The Lord's divine leadership and guidance and protection and provision that had been wrought through Elijah would now continue with Elisha. Well, this pattern in the kingdom of God and in leadership is essentially that leaders do not appoint themselves. They're called by God, they're equipped by God, they're affirmed in that process by God, and recognized by the people of God. Now, let me take you back and, if I can, humbly remind you of, of what the Lord has done here at Pear Orchard Presbyterian. 
Many years ago, our leadership began to wrestle with the question, what will it look like when the day comes that God calls away our present senior pastor, which at that time was me, whether that would be through age or disability or death or whatever that may be. God would one day call me away from that role. Those who study church dynamics say that every pastor is an interim pastor. And so as a senior minister, I was an interim minister. So we began to study that. We began to pray about that. We developed a plan that had these basic leadership principles at the heart of it. We called an associate pastor, Caleb, who appeared to have all of the giftings and all of the qualifications to be our future senior leader. There were no guarantees at the McAllister's that is now down on County Line, but that is, used to be right across the street, I had a three-hour lunch with Caleb, invited him to town to talk through all of those possibilities and begin to lay that vision before him. His gifts and skills and his temperament and spiritual maturity were tested over a course of six years. He was thoroughly examined to see both in his heart and with the approbation of other leaders that God's calling to this new role was clear. And finally, when we had worked through all of that process, when you as a people of God had the opportunity to affirm, was God indeed calling Caleb to this role? 98.5% of you voted yes. Indeed, we believe this is God's plan. You see, that's just one example of countless times when God has called his new leader, has equipped his new leader, has affirmed that that new leader is his man and who receives the affirmation of God's people. God be praised that he has done so here. God is determined that he will always provide faithful people for his church to follow we do so with a discerning faith. The second thing that I want us to note from our scripture text, our second theme this morning, is that Elijah points us over and over again to the majesty of Jesus Christ. He points us to our Savior and helps us to see and to savor Jesus. Now that word savor is a beautiful word. For those of you who are cooks and good in the kitchen, you know what a roux is, don't you? A roux is the base of a soup or some other kind of dish that takes a long time to form. It has multiple different ingredients and it is brought to a boil and then a slow simmer until it gets to the point where it is exceedingly rich. Well, dear ones, there is a process by which God called Elijah to this, uh, called uh, Elisha away from his leadership and Elisha into leadership. But Elijah, all the way along, had been showing us who Christ w was. This was a rue that was being stewed, if you will, over many years. 
I want you to see two ways in which the text shows us that Elijah leads us to Christ. And the first is, quite simply, the very visible ascension to heaven that we find Elijah going through in verse 11. He becomes the forerunner of the ascension of Christ to glory and then his return in glory. Listen to Acts chapter 1 as Dr. Luke recounts this in one verse for us. He said, And when Jesus had finished saying these things, as they, the disciples, were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud and taken out of their sight. Christ, like Elijah, is received into the clouds, but unlike Elijah, Christ is going to return in majestic power. Now, I want you to ask yourself, examine yourself, and answer honestly the question, what do you think about the return of Jesus Christ? It is so often by the vast majority of us an underrated event It is deeply misunderstood. Dr. Ray Dillard again writes this. Listen well to what he has to say. Most often in religious art, the second coming of Jesus is portrayed with billowing, fluffy, white, friendly clouds. But regrettably, such portrayals miss the point. When Jesus returns on the clouds, he comes as a divine warrior in his storm chariot at the heads of the armies of heaven. The clouds are dark, they are laden with flashes of fire and a ripping wind, for he comes to judge the earth, to avenge himself upon his enemies, and establish his kingdom. I wonder if we need to be reminded of what the second coming of Jesus will be like. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation is given a vision of this in chapter 19, verse 11. Let me read it to you. Then I, John, saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes peace. No, he judges and makes peace. War. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, don't we in our modern nuclear age sometimes wonder about the end of the world? A raging war in Ukraine and threats of Russian nuclear weapons. The exact nature of the end of the earth, we don't know, but we do know how it will end. We know it will end in this exact way, that Jesus will return And he will wage war on the nations. And he will wage war on unbelief. 
and he will bring in his reign entirely. And there will be no objector who will survive his reign. Do you remember Elijah's defeat of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in chapter 18? Do you understand what's happening there? That's just a little hors d'oeuvre. It's a little foretaste of what Jesus is going to do at the end of the ages. When Elijah, by the power of God, defeats the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth at Mount Carmel, that is a picture to us in advance of what King Jesus will do. And what Elijah did in his day points forward to what Jesus will do in his day. Elijah points us forward to this holiness, this power, this faithfulness, and God be thanked this forgiving grace of Jesus. But there's a second way in which we see by comparison that Elijah helps us to savor Jesus. Jesus is better than the great Moses. And Jesus is better than the great prophet Elijah. For he's the son, as the author of Hebrews tells us, who is over God's house. And who makes us, believe it or not, the co-heirs of all that belongs to him. This morning, Pastor Caleb read from Matthew 17, which, in which we find the, the transfiguration of our Lord. Peter, James, and John, they go up with Jesus onto the mountain. They see him transformed. They see an earthly vision of the majesty of his glory. And who is Jesus seen meeting with? Moses, Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And so you remember that Moses parted the Red Sea when the Israelites went through in their rescue. Moses went up on the mountain to receive from God the commands of God and came down and delivered them to the people of God. Elijah went up the mountain to, to defeat the false prophets. And Elijah goes in our text to the Jordan River in miraculous fashion and parts the waters. So don't you see, if you missed it when we read it in chapter 17 of Matthew, that the transfiguration is one of the definitive declarations that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the final prophet in whom dwells all the word of God without fail. There is none other. And so we see Jesus raging the, calming the raging storm at the Sea of Galilee. And we see Jesus going up on his mountain to deliver his sermon, the law of his kingdom. You see, Elijah and Moses... They show us that Jesus is greater. Jesus is the greater Moses, the mediator and the protector and the deliverer of people, of his people. Jesus is the greater Elijah, the warrior prophet who defeats his and our enemies and who is constantly subduing our hearts to his heart, perfecting justice and righteousness until he should come again. 
And so don't you see that the transfer of the mantle of leadership from Elijah to Elisha is meant to show us that in reality the mantle has always been on the shoulders of Jesus. It's his mantle. And he, as it were, loans it temporarily to his leaders throughout the kingdom of God in all of the ages. He is the Lord. He is the leader. He is the one whose authority takes place in the kingdom of God. You and I ought to be struck with awe. We ought to bow low in adoring worship. Elijah makes you to see and savor Jesus. Our third and final theme this morning is drawn from the text, and it's this. That God's plan and power are not tied to nor hostage to leaders and seasons to which we have become accustomed. Let me say it again. God's plan and power are not tied to nor are they hostage to leaders and seasons to which we have become accustomed. Now, that happens in everyday life. We get accustomed to something. We think it's normative. We think it'll always be that way. But in fact, it won't. No one leader, no season of leadership contains God's power and blessing such that when that leader or season is exhausted, that God's blessing is exhausted. This is such an important reminder in the kingdom of God. Key leaders are never indispensable servants. Look at verses 14 and 15 in our passage and you'll see that we're meant to conclude that. Elijah, Elisha takes up the mantle of Elijah and strikes the Jordan River with it, calling out, where is the Lord? the God of Elijah. And clearly the blessing has fallen upon Elisha. Elisha crosses over and, listen, Elijah is no longer needed. There is no leader in the kingdom of God, nor has there ever been one who is essential and indispensable. Save Jesus Christ. That is crucial for us. In verse 14, Elisha crosses over. Elisha is confirmed by the Lord's miraculous gift here that he is in fact the new leader. In verse 15, the company of the prophets could see that the Lord was now with Elisha. And they testified to that fact and they gather and they come and they bow down in honor before this new leader. And in verses 8 through 14 of our passage, there's a clear reenactment of events from the past. Do you remember another time when the Jordan River was parted by a leader of Israel? Moses is on his way out and Joshua is on his way in and Joshua leads the people of God into Canaan. And the Ark of the Covenant goes into the river and the waters part 
and the priests follow the ark and the people of God pass through the waters into Canaan. And so under Joshua, we hear this, Joshua chapter 3 and verse 7, God says to Joshua, I will be with you and exalt you as I was with Moses. God says, Joshua, don't worry about your reputation. Your reputation is in my hands. I will exalt you before the people of God. You are my man. When Elisha and Elijah duplicate this dividing of the Jordan River, God is saying, I am the God of covenant promises who hundreds of years ago was faithful to my people. I will be faithful to you today, whether it's through Elijah or Elisha or someone altogether that you don't even know about yet. And so it is true for us today, and even more so in our age of the finished work of Christ And the gift of the Holy Spirit, God is still saving, he's still sanctifying, he's still rescuing us and our children and our children's children. The Lord God of Israel of old is our God today, and he needs no past leader, he needs no present season of leadership to continue on the work because it is his work and his son is the leader. Though in the kingdom of God, it is perfectly right to honor and respect and follow godly leaders, we must never revere those men and women so that we become dependent upon them in thinking that only God works through them. Dr. Ralph Davis who many of you know writes this and reflects not only on this passage but on the death of of John Calvin, the great reformer of the 1500s. Now remember, John Calvin was in his day among the most recognized names of all who could read and write and all who were not just, shall we say, rank pagans who knew nothing of what God was doing in the world one of the greatest leaders of history. Ralph Davis writes this, God's leaders change, but God's power persists. Perhaps sometimes God removes his most illustrious servants so that we will not make idols of them as though they are the only conduits of God's help. Perhaps God deliberately displays his might through other instruments that we will not be transfixed on the pizzazz of God's servants, but on the strength of God's arm. Now he refers to the writings of someone who recalls Calvin's funeral. Calvin had left definite instructions when he died about what should happen. Nothing was to distinguish his funeral from anyone else's. His body was to be sewn into a white shroud. He was to be placed in a simple pine coffin. And at the grave, there were neither to be words nor songs. It was to be silent. And his wishes were carried out scrupulously, but though all pomp was avoided, a multitude followed the coffin to the graveside. There was deep respect and silent grief. This man who was averse to all ambition did not even want a tombstone. And for good reason, listen to what happened 
in all of his life, but towards the end of his life, theological students from all over Europe would come to see John Calvin. And they revered him so deeply. He did not want a tombstone so that when foreign students desired to visit the place where the reformer's body rested, only a few months later, it could no longer be found among all of the fresh mounds of dirt that had been dug for those who had died in the interim. To this day, we have no idea where his grave is. Ralph Davis says, how appropriate. Why do we need a Calvin grotto when we have the God whom Calvin served? Nicholas Zinzendorf was a German Moravian minister in the 1700s and a missionary pioneer. He is quoted as having said to a group of ministers and missionaries, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now that may sound morose to our modern ears, but I submit to you it is true humility and it is true God-centeredness. We're faithful to preach the gospel. We die. We're forgotten. Let me broaden it to all of us. Live the gospel. Die. And be content to be forgotten. Because those of us who are in Christ Jesus can never be forgotten by the one who matters. By the leader of his church. By the one who will never let us go. To do so, to live the gospel, die and be forgotten is to exalt Christ and to make much of him and little of ourselves. And isn't that the point of the Christian life? To make much of Christ and little of us. To have little thought for ourselves, that is the true Christian's goal. And much thought for Christ who has sealed our reputation in heaven. May God be pleased to encourage us with these truths this morning. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are. Grateful that you will never allow your church to lack the leaders that will carry her forward until the day that you return. For you are our undisputed indispensable head. We humbly fall at your feet. Exalt yourself. Restore us to your beautiful image, we pray. In Jesus' name.